I love that video. Um, it, it's part of the process of having multiple people involved in creating some of this stuff is that you see things that maybe you didn't see before. I had my whole mind and, 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 and heart set on a certain direction for this series that we're starting today called Saved. And I kind of gave my thoughts to Jenny and she came up with that idea of how big is this word? How big is saved? Where does it fit? Does it fit in your you know, toolbox? Does it fit in your cup? Does it fit in your handbag? Does it fit into your lifestyle? Uh, what a great way to think about this word. Um, saved is, is an important word for those of us who follow Jesus, for those of us who believe in Christ, and really for everyone because the church has made it its mission to try to, to seek and to save the lost. Is that not what Jesus said his mission was? And so the church basically exists for that purpose. Now, different churches take on different mission statements and purpose statements, but essentially the mission handed to us by Jesus is to go and make disciples, which is essentially to seek and to save the lost, just like he did. And so this word saved is an important word that is often misunderstood. In fact, it's often a word that we simply use in the Christian faith in churches, maybe to decide who's in and who's out. You know, have you ever walked up to a person that maybe was new at church or somebody that you weren't sure if they even attended church and, and said, are you saved? I, I know some of you probably wouldn't use that terminology today. We, we probably wouldn't just walk up and be that bold. But when I was growing up in the church, we were encouraged, were we not, Dennis, to walk up to people and to try to start a conversation by asking the simple question, are you saved? And because of the time that I grew up and the fact that church had pretty much permeated everyone's lives at that point, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I heard a comedian say that 80s and 90s Christian parents were the most Christian parents that have ever lived. Um, in some ways, they were very Christian and none of us were allowed to have any fun, <laughs> except for Dennis, because he was a rebel, you know. Anyway, but, um, you know, th th I grew up during a time when people understood pretty much what that word meant. Well, today I think we're confused about it. And sometimes in the church, we use the word saved to simply try to identify who's in and who's out. Well, who's in and who's out of what, pastor? The kingdom, of course. Are you saved or are you not? Are you a Christian or are you not? Now, wouldn't it make more sense for those of us who are believers in Christ to simply look at each other and watch each other's lives and look at the fruit that comes out of each other's lives to determine whether or not we're in the process of building a good relationship with God? Doesn't that seem like a more logical way to determine that? Rather than simply looking at one word that we use sometimes to categorize people as part of the church or not part of the church. This discussion kind of came to my attention when I was a Church of God kid growing up in a Baptist school because the Church of God taught that it was possible for you to walk away from your faith, that you could walk with Jesus, but if you decided to walk away from him, God wouldn't keep you. He would allow you to simply go your separate ways. The Baptists, on the other hand, didn't believe you could ever lose your salvation, and so you know they believed that once you were saved, once you prayed that prayer, once you accepted Jesus, whatever terminology you want to use, that you were in for life, and you could pretty much go out and live like the devil if you wanted to, and you'd still be a Christian. Interestingly enough, I once had a conversation with one of my teachers who came to me and, and was concerned about my older brother. And he said, your older brother's not really providing a good witness for Christ. And I said, yes, he's an alcoholic. Yes, he's not. He's kind of off the rails right now. In that period of his life, he was not doing real good. And they said, I fear for him. I fear that God may take him home early 
so that he doesn't have the opportunity to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but in my opinion, that theology is a little bit messed up. We had these debates constantly. Can you lose your salvation or can you not? This is what I determined. They would say if someone walked away from Christ, generally speaking, that they were never actually a Christian in the first place. In the, method, in the, the Wesleyan tradition that I grew up in, we would say that they simply walked away from their faith, which Hebrews 5 seems to indicate you could do. Whole other discussion. But the biggest thing I learned about that whole conversation is that it's irrelevant. Because it doesn't matter to me whether you're in or out. My responsibility for you and toward you is the same whether you are a believer in Christ and are saved or whether you are a pagan who does not even believe that God exists. And my responsibility to you either way is to be the best possible witness that I can be for Christ, to love you like Jesus loves you, to forgive you like God forgave me, and to always speak well of you and find good things to say about you. Amen? Amen. My responsibility doesn't change. Now, it's interesting to me that, that we often use this saved word to try to determine how we treat people. Are they one of us or are they not? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We should treat them the same way regardless. And here's the thing. I believe that God is the only one who truly knows about some of you people. <laughs> and me, probably me, right? Because there are times in all of our lives where, man, we are tracking with Jesus. We're walking in the right direction. We're reading our Bible. We're praying. We're, we have solid relationships, iron, or iron sharpening iron, all that good stuff. And we're just going whole hog into, into our faith. And there are other days where we struggle to be holy just getting out of bed in the morning. How many of you would admit that you stubbed your toe getting out of bed and said a curse word that early in the morning? Anybody willing? I'm putting my hand down because I'm not admitting to that. Now, if I shut my finger in a car door, we'd have a whole other conversation. That's happened. My kids, can, well, they'll tell on me if I don't fess up to that. Listen, there are days when we do better and there are days we're doing worse. And the, the most biggest waste of time that Christians could ever do is to watch another person's life and say, oh, they're in. They're doing good. Oh, they're out. Oh, they're in. Oh, no, they're out. What are we doing? Listen, saved, not saved, is not for us to decide. And it really shouldn't be for us to discuss other than the simple fact that we want to make sure that every single person we meet has the opportunity to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But the saved word is a hard word because it means different things to different people. For some people to get saved means basically, as I said before, that, that you pray a prayer and then you live however you want to the rest of your life. And, and that's being taught. And un unfortunately, during um, the time that I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, evangelism was being stressed to the degree that people were, you know, like just going out trying to get people saved and getting them to say a prayer. But then there was never any follow-up. There was never any discipleship. All they wanted to do was get that person to say the prayer so that they could add another, you know, like mark on their belt or something, or they were accumulating how many people. And it was just made to look easy. Well, all you got to do is get them to pray the prayer and God will do the rest. Friends, I do not believe that is the end of our responsibility. But regardless of that, because of that kind of teaching, a lot of people just got saved and they have no idea what that means. And so they treat it like fire insurance. When I was a kid growing up at the Baptist school, we used to call these people fire insurance Christians because, you know, fire insurance doesn't do you any good unless you're in the fire. Amen. 
And so they had a Christianity that didn't do them any good at all until the day that they died. And then they somehow believed that, that they would go to heaven instead of hell. But that's the only thing that changed about their lives. Maybe that's your version of faith. Maybe that's what you believe. I don't know. Some up to some other people, it, it may be that getting saved for you means that now you go to church and at least on Sundays you behave yourself for the most part. Unless somebody sits in your seat and then we're throwing down, right? Amen? Amen? Or unless the pastor doesn't do the song I like and then I'm going after him, right? Or if he does one of those new songs I don't like or whatever. Yeah, yeah. She, I, there's one song she wants me to do and I just can't. It's a 70s song. <laughs> I can't play the... See, I'm running out of excuses. I can't play the guitar part. Anyway, we, we find reasons to be holy on Sunday. Maybe Christianity for you is just Sunday. Friends, it, it can be more than that. Maybe for some of you, after you got saved, you were on fire. You were ready to live the Christian life. You wanted to be discipled. You were reading your Bible. You were wanting to talk to people about Jesus. And maybe you came home and, and the people around you, the older saints that you know, kind of cooled you off and said, hey, just chill, all right? Don't, don't get so crazy. Don't get so extravagant. Don't, don't be a lunatic, you know? Just, you know, you gotta, you gotta pace yourself in this world of faith. I have seen many, many times kids, young people come home from camps and youth conventions on fire for Jesus, only to have sometimes the people in their church because they, they don't like the ruckus that it's making, or maybe because they feel a little insecure that these kids are on fire, just try to calm them down and, oh, just, just give them time and they'll, they'll settle down. Well, let me tell you something, man. We shouldn't be settling them down. We should be feeding the flames, right? Listen, if you want to see the fire of Christ burn bright, don't dampen it. Throw fire. Throw gasoline on it. I don't know what the spiritual equivalent of gasoline is, but if I figure it out, y'all are in trouble. I, I don't know what that is. But anyway, maybe for you, you got saved and you were on fire and somebody discouraged you from being a fervent Christian because they called you too radical or something like that. Maybe some of you were promised. If you just follow Jesus, if you just accept Jesus, if you just get saved, then your life will be a piece of cake from this point forward. Dennis, you're giving away my jokes, man. Stop it. How many of you know that's absolutely not true? God never promised us that our lives with him would be perfect or peaceful all the time or easy. But he did promise the peace that passes all understanding. There's a difference between having peace and having things be peaceful, right? You can have peace in your heart with five crazy little children running around your house. To this, I can testify. Amen? You can have peace in your heart even when a loved one is going through the process of dying and on hospice and, and, and passing from this world into the next, even though the situation may not be peaceful. Listen, you can have peace in your heart when you're literally at odds with everybody in your life. You can have peace about that if you know that you have surrendered and given it to God and done all you can to bring resolution and reconciliation. Peace is different from peaceful. Listen, God never promised us that it would be perfect. And maybe salvation isn't what you were promised. Maybe you didn't get the peace or the prosperity that someone promised you. 
once you became a Christian. But I don't know what your version of saved is, but I do know this. The word has been misunderstood and misrepresented at times by the church. And so it's my sincere hope that as we approach this topic and see what scripture has to say about it, that it will bring some clarity and maybe even restore some fervor and some interest in your lives to pursue what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to live as a saved person and not just take it for granted? How do we live the life? that God promises in Scripture that he calls a life more abundant. In order to live that life, you got to get started on the right foot. And the terminology that, that we often use to get started in the faith is, is this. We ask the question, have you accepted Christ? And I know I'm picking on verbiage today. This is, this is what this whole series is going to be. Um, are you saved is one question, but a more acceptable uh, question might be, have you accepted Christ? It simply puts the option out there. And we use that term a lot of times, again, to find out if someone is in or out or if they're a part of us or not. The problem is that the terminology of accepting Christ really is found nowhere in the Bible. And it doesn't really describe what we really should be describing when we're talking about beginning our faith. But many of you um, were given that terminology. And so when the pastor said, if you'd like to come forward and accept Christ, you came forward and you accepted Christ. And the problem with that phrase is, I don't like the way that it, it kind of brings visions into my head. When when I hear the words accept something, that almost feels like, you know, you're, you're weighing the, the goods and the bads, the pros and the cons, and you're just trying to decide whether or not you should receive what's being offered or whether you can just let it go. It, it puts it all on us, and I do recognize that God has given us free will. He's given us a choice to decide whether or not we're going to follow him. But that same choice, when it's put in those phrases, it just makes me kind of feel uh, bad about it. It puts God in that awkward position of kind of standing on the other side of the door, waiting for us to respond, waiting for us to, to take on whether or not we want to do it. The idea of acceptance to me is similar to the notion of, of tolerance, like we're, we're weighing it to see if we could tolerate the Christian lifestyle or how much will it do for me and what are the benefits of having it. Because today we look at Christianity a lot of times like we're trying to buy something. You know, what is this going to do for me? How is it going to improve my life? Let me tell you something. We're talking about accepting a gift from the God of the universe here. We're not talking about buying a new dishwasher, right? You can weigh the pros and cons of spending the money on a new car. You can weigh the pros and cons of buying a new house. You can weigh the pros and cons of dating somebody or marrying somebody even. But let me tell you something. This whole Christianity thing is more serious than that. Because we're talking about the God of the universe who has extended an invitation. It's like being invited to the table by a king, right? He's the one who created heavens and earth and made everything around us that is interesting and also everything that around us that is weird. How many of you like the weird stuff better? Let me tell you a weird story then, just for fun. I woke up last week to my wife hollering from our bathroom. Jeff! What? There's mushrooms growing in the bathroom. In my sleepy haze, I thought for sure I had misheard her, right? Because I didn't plant any mushrooms in the bathroom. And I'm pretty sure my wife's not even into mushrooms. So what in the world? And, you know, so I said, what? There's mushrooms growing in the bathroom. The tone changed. It's now my fault. 
Amen? Men, do you know that talk? First of all, it's a declaration of information. Second time around, what did you do? I'm like, there, there's not mushrooms. There is mushrooms growing in the bathroom. I'm like, it'll be fine. I'll take care of it when I get up. Because she gets up earlier than me some days. So anyway, after she leaves, because I didn't want to have her help me with that. <laughs> Nothing personal, but I can get rid of things like that quickly and efficiently. She's going to want to study it and send it away to the health department to find out if it's going to kill us in a month, right? So anyway, she leaves, and I go in, into the bathroom. And I know probably where she's talking, the little tiny hole um, where I hadn't yet put a piece of trim across. And at one point, the shower had a little tiny leak, and a little bit of moisture got in there. And so, you know, we fixed the leak. Everything was fine. But, you know, every once in a while, you know, ants or something would crawl out of there, and we'd spray them, whatever. Anyway, there's a little tiny hole in the corner of the, the bathroom. And I look down there, and not only is there two fully grown two-inch mushrooms sticking, sticking out of that hole, but there is their fluff, pollen, whatever it is they create, laying all around it. Like, they not only grew up overnight, but they poofed us. <laughs> I, don't know how to, I don't know what that's called, but it, it's, I'm like, that's, that's going to grow inside of us like an alien or something here. And so, you know what? I went and got gloves on because I don't know what kind of mushrooms these are. And I've never been high, but I don't want to experiment. You know what I'm saying? So I, I put rubber gloves on, got a Ziploc just in case she wanted to study them further. Karen just nodded at me. She knew I was going to do that. Anyway, so I picked them up very carefully, shoved them in the bag, cleaned up everything. I just got to tell you, there are some weird things in this world. I don't think she took it to the health department. If so, the it's not back yet, so we don't care. But what in the world? There are some weird things that go on in this world. And you know what? Every single one of them is a uniqueness that God put in this world for a reason. There's a reason God gave mushrooms the ability to grow out of the infrastructure of my house. I have no idea what that reason might be, but I'm sure it served a purpose at some point. Amen? Or maybe it's the effects of sin in the fallen world. I don't know. But listen, we're talking about the God of the universe, the one who created this world with so much uniqueness that it blows your mind sometimes. And then you look at the people that he created in the world. Look at this room for a moment and see the uniqueness of every single person in here. There is not one person in here that looks like another. Well, wait, is Clara here? We do have twins in the, no, Clara's not here. That's a true statement then. There is not two people that look exactly alike in this room. And I guarantee that looking alike is not the beginning of it. There are no two people who are the same anywhere on earth. God created all that uniqueness. Jesus left heaven, came to this earth, lived among stinking humanity, and then went to the cross for us. Friends, this decision that you're making is not a let's weigh the pros or cons kind of thing. It's an invitation from the president, from the ruler of the world, from the king of all kings, and it should be considered based on his love for us, and not just whether or not it's going to make my life better or worse. And so this idea of accepting Jesus puts it in the range of, well, if I want it, I'll take it. If I don't, I won't. So I don't like that terminology. And in fact, it is not in Scripture, as I mentioned before. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says about this idea of accepting Jesus. He uses the terminology to explain what it should mean, but this is not at all what we kind of bring it across as. Hear these words. He says this, 
accepting Jesus, and then he actually clarifies it by saying, receiving Jesus Christ into your life, because receiving is probably a better word, um, into your life means that you have made an attachment to the person of Christ that is revolutionary. In that, it reverses the life and transforms it completely. You see, this is not just something I'm going to decide whether to believe or not and then go on about my life. To become saved, to receive Jesus, to accept Christ should mean an attachment to Christ that changes everything about you. And friends, there are some of you that need some change. I'm going to say. And I'm one of them. Listen, it should change everything. He goes on to say, transform it completely. It is an attachment to the person of Christ. It is complete in that it leaves no part of the life unaffected. It exempts no area of the life of the total man, his total being. Listen, you can accept, accept something without changing. I think we should use a different word. I think we should use the biblical word. I would submit that accept is not the word we should be using, but rather follow is a better word. Have you followed Christ? Do you follow Christ? Here's where I get that from, Luke 9, 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me, right? If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Listen, I believe we should start using the terminology follow instead of accept. Because accept gives the impression that it's something we can take or leave on a whim. Follow is something you have to make plans to do. You have to be willing to do. You have to be committed to do. It's not just about receiving the blessing that God has for you. It's about deciding that once that blessing is received and the forgiveness is ours, that we are now going to become his people, his followers, and we're going to follow him wherever he leads. This is not just a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, there's a great example of this. Let me just do a little case study from the book of Exodus. Um, some of you might have heard the story. Others of you may not be familiar with it. If not, it's okay. There's time for you to go home and do research, right? In Exodus, we have the story of the children of Israel. God was trying to make a relationship with his people, with the children of Israel. He started with Abraham and then with his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his family. And he was trying to build a relationship with them so that they would be his representatives on the earth to tell others about him. And so as, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob followed God, finally in the, in the days of Jacob, they moved to Egypt because of a famine. And as the story goes, they multiplied rapidly and literally filled the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians were so afraid that the Israelites were growing to the point that they were going to take over that they started oppressing them and they enslaved them and they put them to work. And pretty much the only thing Israelites had to look forward to every day was the meals they had because every other inch of every day was filled with labor and work. It's interesting. The scripture says that the Egyptians tried to work them harder so that they couldn't reproduce as fast. It didn't work. They just kept going and going. And so finally, the, the Israelites cried out to God, and God heard their cry, and he sent Moses to Egypt to deliver them. Long story short, 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 long story short, I think my cold medicine's kicking in a little. Let me hurry. Um, anyway, so Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, I want to take the children of Israel into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to our God. And they both knew what he was really asking for. He was really asking 
for him to let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh, of course, was stubborn. He didn't want to lose their workforce. And so he said, no, you're not going. And Moses showed him a couple of signs and wonders that God had showed his brother Aaron how to do. And, and Pharaoh's magicians kind of did the same tricks, you know. And so he's like, yeah, you got nothing. Get out of here. So Moses goes back. And, of course, life gets harder for the Israelites. Well, over the next weeks, months, I'm not sure what the actual timeline is. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. God continues to visit um, plagues on Egypt to show Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt who's boss. Frogs. Frogs look like cute, cuddly little critters, but I'll tell you what, you fill your entire house with them, they are nasty. God sent a plague of frogs all over the land of Egypt. He sent a plague of, of, of flies. He turned the Nile, into, the Nile River into blood. Um, he, he sent um, hail that was like fiery hail and turned the whole land of of Egypt dark, so dark, the scripture says, that you could actually like feel the darkness. It was so dark. And all of these plagues, each time Pharaoh would go, all right, fine, you can go. And then as soon as the plague would go away, he's like, nope, you can't. Finally, at the last, when God had kind of seen everything that he could take, he told Moses, you go tell Pharaoh this last one's going to be a doozy, and here's what's going to happen. We're going to send the angel of death on this particular night, and the angel of death is going to move throughout the land of Egypt and he's going to take the life of the firstborn of Egypt. Everything, everyone who is the firstborn, every, all of your, your oxen and your, your sheep and all of your animals, everything that is a firstborn will die on that night. But he said, listen, for the Israelites, here's what you're going to do. You're going to sacrifice a lamb, and you're going to do it a certain way. It's got, and they had specific specifications for the lamb. It had to be perfect. You're going to kill this lamb. You're going to start to cook it. You're going to take the blood, and you're going to put it on the doorpost and the, and the um, cross piece above your, your house. You're going to mark your doorway, basically, with the blood of this lamb. And because the doorway is marked, you're going to be saved from the angel of death. It's going to pass over your house. How many of you recognize Passover as a feast that the Jews celebrate? That's where this came from. It's going to pass over your house, and it won't touch anyone in that house. And then he goes on to give some other specifications. Listen, this is going to be the beginning of your journey out. So first of all, I want you to roast the meat, the whole animal. You're not going to boil any of it. You're not going to save any of it. None of it's to be left raw. You're going to cook the whole animal. You're going to eat as much as you want to eat, and then you're going to burn the rest. No leftovers. No leftovers at all because tomorrow morning you're walking out of here. You're going to eat with your sandals on. You're going to eat with your cloak on. You're going to eat with your staff in your hand. You are going to be ready to move so that by the time morning comes and the Egyptians discover what has happened, they're going to tell you to leave and you're going to go. How many of you sound, how many, for how many of you does that sound like you trying to get your kids ready for church in the morning? Get your staff in your hand. Get your clothes on. Get your shoes on. We're leaving. Anyway. I don't know why things, it's the drugs. Anyway, so he tells them all this stuff. And sure enough, the Israelites do as they're told, and they put the, the blood up there. And, and God saved them miraculously from the angel of death. And the Egyptians actually gave them all of their money. They gave them lots of possessions and things. And they took the riches of Egypt with them as they left. Of course, the story goes on. Pharaoh chases them. Red Sea issue. You can read up on that on your own. Suffice it to say, the Israelite nation became a great nation, and through that nation, the entire world was blessed because Jesus came through their lineage. But what if? What if Israel said, we accept what you're saying, Moses? We accept that if we put the blood on our, our post, that we'll be saved, and so we're going to do that. And so they did that. But maybe some of them decided, you know what? I think God's asking a bit much. 
you know? I don't really like roasted lamb. I prefer mine boiled in water. So you know what, I'm just gonna roast my lamb, or I'm gonna boil my, my, my lamb. It might take a little longer, but I'm gonna do it that way because I like it better. And burn the leftovers? Are you kidding me? I have a teenager in my house. There's no way I'm burning the leftovers. Um, anybody else have a teenager that cannot stop eating? Holy cow. I'm, I'm just gonna keep the leftovers. I mean, what's it really gonna hurt? I can carry it with me or whatever. And by the way, this whole moving thing, have you ever moved Moses? I mean, I know it's bad here in Egypt, but at least we have a house to live in. At least we have jobs. And by the way, when you move, you have to empty even those closets nobody ever looks in. It's a horrible process, right? I don't think I really want to move. So I'll tell you what, I'll take, I'll take the salvation, but I don't really want to do the rest of the stuff because, you know, it's not so bad here in Egypt. Imagine what would have happened. It wasn't enough. If they wanted to become the people of God, they couldn't just take the salvation without all of the other stuff that goes with it. They had to make a commitment. When they accepted the, the blood of the lamb on the doorstep as the salvation event, they also had to begin making preparations for a lifestyle change that would change who they were from that point forward. They would no longer be known as that family that went to Egypt as they moved out of Egypt. Most historians believe that is the moment they became a nation not just a family. And that nation has been a part of the daily news ever since, amen? Sometimes in good ways and other times in really bad ways. But the impact they've had on history is huge. Listen, it's not enough for us just to accept what God offers for salvation. When he gives us that, we need to be ready to move forward and to follow him with all that we are. That scripture that I read a moment ago, um, says a couple of things that are worth revisiting. If any of you wants to be my follower, notice that he says, if any of you wants. It is a choice. It is a, it is a decision that you get to make. One of, the, one of the hardest things about Christianity, especially for people like me and, and people that are in the church and people who are concerned about the lost, is that you can't force anybody to follow Jesus. Let me say that again. You can't force anybody to follow Jesus. Nor is enticing someone to pray a prayer really helping them follow Jesus. Do I need to say that again? Because listen, I grew up during the era of, oh, come to Jesus. It's fun. It's easy. You can do it. All you got to do is pray this prayer, and then, you know, God will work out all the rest of the stuff later. Friends, that's not how it works. It is a commitment. It's a lifetime commitment that he makes, but it is your choice to make. If any of you would come after me, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way. That should have been the clue right there. Listen, this is not about business as usual. You don't become a Christian and stay the same, right? It just isn't that way. Becoming a Christian changes you from the inside out. Now that change comes as the Holy Spirit leads and as you respond in obedience but God expects us to be ready like the Israelites, ready to follow him wherever he might lead. Take up your cross daily and follow me. I believe we should stop asking the question, have you accepted Jesus? I think we should start asking the question, do you follow Jesus? Because the first question points to something you did before, an event a single solitary event. Have you accepted Jesus? The other points to an ongoing decision. Do you, not have you, 
do you follow Jesus? Because it's a decision and it's a commitment that I believe we need to make every single day. Now, some of you going, Pastor, this is bait and switch. I was told all I had to do was pray a prayer. Listen, once you pray that prayer, I believe the angels of heaven rejoice and you are in. You have the opportunity now to start walking with Jesus. But if that's all you ever do, that relationship will shrivel on the vine just like a vine that is not tended, a vine that is not watered, a vine that never gets the nutrients that it needs. And eventually your faith will die. It's easy to say, I've accepted Jesus. It's not easy to follow Jesus each and every day. But I believe that's what it's about. Listen, following Jesus is an attachment to the person of Christ that changes your life forever. It's a commitment to know the Savior and become more like him each and every day. It's hard. <laughs> Amen? It's complicated at times. And sometimes it's pretty unpopular. I'm feeling pretty unpopular right now. Some of you are giving me the look of, it's not what I signed up for, Pastor. But listen, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I'm not saying that because I want you to come to the altar and pray. I'm saying that because I want you to enter into the relationship that you have with Jesus or continue in the relationship you have with Jesus, whichever it is, knowing full well what it means. It's hard. It's complicated. It can be unpopular, but it is worth it because having Jesus walking beside you every single moment of every day is the greatest joy you could ever experience. And the community and the fellowship that we have together as we follow Jesus together, I believe, is one of the best things you'll ever experience. Churches fight, not this church. Right? You think I'm saying that facetiously, but it's been a while, friends. You know why? Because I believe that the people who are now here resonate with the same goal, the same mission, and the same ministry that God called us to. It's been a while since I've heard the scuttle. Maybe you're just telling Pat and he's not telling me. Friends, I believe that the community and the fellowship that we have in this church is real. And the community and the fellowship that you have in a church that is following the mission of Jesus will always draw people together. Will they be skirmishes? Sure. We can't all agree on the right music, which we all know is the kind I like. <laughs> we can't all agree even on whether we should have air conditioning or not. Do you believe this? Our air conditioning has been broke since last year. Mary is trying to campaign to never get it fixed because she likes it hot in here. Let's vote right now. Air conditioning gets fixed. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, we're not always going to agree on everything, but so long as we love Jesus and we're following him, we should meet in the, in the path. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for allowing us to examine for a moment something that is commonplace. The word saved is one that probably every believer who maybe grew up in the church that's hearing my voice knows what it means and, and they have their own ideas about that word. But Father, I, I'm asking for us to look at it again because salvation does not mean the same thing for most people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at your word and, and to determine what salvation means based on your word. And according to Luke 9, 23, it's, 
It's a decision that we make to follow you and to give up our own life and to stop striving for what is best for us and, and to allow you to work out through us what is best for, for your kingdom and for others. Father, help us in this series to discover what it really means to be saved. And if there are some who find that, that their life, their salvation, their walk with you doesn't match what we're finding in Scripture, I pray that you would give us the honesty and the integrity to, to be willing to align ourselves with what the Word of God says. Not because Pastor Jeff said it, but because your Word said it. And I would ask, Lord, that you would help each person who's here and, and hearing my voice to answer this question today. Do I follow Jesus? Not just have I accepted him many years ago or did I pray a prayer at one point or did somebody tell me I was saved because I did what they told me, but do I actually follow Jesus on a daily basis? Does the fact that I am in a relationship with God through Christ change the way that I treat others? Does it change the way that I, I, I spend my money? Does it change what I put in front of my eyes and, and what I look at on the internet? Does it change... Um, my, my choice when it comes to close friends that I bring into my confidence, does it change my life for the better? Am I willing to live for the mission of Christ, which is to seek and to save the lost? Not just to keep it to ourselves or, or have this club where all the saved people come, but to reach out and to be the gospel to those who need it. Father, I ask that as we look forward to at least one big event that is an opportunity for us to do that, the, the homeless picnic, that you would allow many from this congregation to follow you in helping to serve at that event and to go, even if it's just to meet some of the folks and have a conversation. But Father, help us to change our mindset from the idea that we could do something a long time ago that, that lasts a lifetime to the idea that we need to do something every single day that will continue to renew our drive and our desire to follow you and to be your children every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, meet me at Dennis's tonight, and then you can be dismissed.